You are listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. I'm Harriet Hendel. On our last podcast, we met Gia Wirtz, who has made a short documentary about the wrongful conviction of Jeffrey Deskovic. Jeffrey is with us today, and for the next two podcasts coming up, we will have both Gia and Jeffrey with us at the same time. I want to welcome Jeffrey Deskovic so that our listeners are up to speed on our theme. I want to briefly introduce you to Jeffrey. He was accused of killing a classmate at Peekskill High School in New York when he was 16. He was innocent. He spent the next 16 years in prison. Jeffrey, it is so good to have you with us. Thank Thank you you for having me. Please give us a snapshot of who you were as a teenager way back in 1989. So I didn't really think of it that way then, but I realized now I kind of lived somewhat of a double life. So, you know, uh, after school, I was kind of one of the main kids, you know, in the apartment complex and surrounding areas. So like whatever I would suggest would be you know, what we would do. So if we're going to go swimming, we're going to play Monopoly, we're going to play video games, we're going to play basketball or any range of other activities. But that was after school. You know, in school, the kids were a year or two older than I was uh, because I had skipped a grade when I was extremely young. So, you know, I was kind of quiet and to myself and I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. And so I didn't quite fit in in the, the high school. Oh, I see. That's that's interesting. Any other um, things that stand out as you look back today to the teenager that you were then? Uh, well, I came from a single parent household. I, I, I never I met my father uh, much later on in life, uh, around uh, 32 years old. So he was never really in my life. So, you know, that will later intersect in my story. And the other aspect to that was prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a police officer when I grew up. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Wow. Um, all right. So let's begin to piece the puzzle together. Can you tell us how you came to be singled out as a suspect in this crime? The police interviewed a lot of high school students and some of them told the police they might want to speak to me because I didn't fit in. Secondarily, I had an emotional reaction to the victim being murdered. I mean, she was, was my first brush. This was my first brush with death. She was a classmate in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. And the police thought that my emotional reaction uh, was some sort of outward sign of my being sorry for what I had done. And then they got a psychological profile which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator and i had the misfortune of matching that so it was a type of reinforcing factor um can you be a little bit more specific about what you just said about the characteristics matching what do you mean by that well the profile said it was likely that somebody already who already knew who previously knew the victim probably a loner probably a classmate and you fit that description is what you're saying. It is. Right. Okay. Um, all right. So they seem to single you out. And then 
the next thing that occurred is you were questioned by detectives for as long as six hours. Is that is that accurate? Uh, six and a half to seven, but yes, but but uh, that was really the day of the coerced false confession. So there was actually a six weeks run up to that. So right. I, I met many times with the police and those conversations had the following dynamic that they would start out questioning me as a suspect. And when they would push too hard and I would start to become frightened and when I get away from them, they would uh, switch it up. And Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was uh, what they, how they verbalized it. So they would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you, let us know if you hear anything, stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinions were correct. So eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test by telling me they had some new information in the file that they wanted to share with me. And that would allow me to be more effective uh, with them. I want to mention that the, with the good cop, bad cop technique, they had one officer pretending to be my friend. I began to look up to him as a father figure. And as I mentioned earlier, wanting to be a cop when I grew up, that intersected with Jeff as this junior detective helper theme. So the next day, rather than report to school, I went to the police station for the test. And they drove me instead from Peekskill, New York, to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County, so 40 minutes away by car. That meant I was not able to leave anymore on my own. I was dependent upon the police. There were three cops that came with me from Peekskill. There was there was the polygraphist who was a who was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed as a civilian, pretending not to be a cop. He never read me my rights. They gave me a brochure that explained how the polygraph worked, but I didn't understand it. But then I thought I'm there to help the police, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. I had no attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. They put me in a small room and they gave me countless cups of coffee. It seems pretty clear they did that to get me nervous. And then he attached me to this machine. And then he launched into his third degree tactic. So he raised his voice at me, he invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. You know, we just want you to verbally confirm it. And then the cop who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were gonna harm me. He'd been holding them off, but he couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added that if I did as they wanted, they'd stop what they're doing. I could go home afterwards, that I was not gonna be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically, I was in fear of my life. You know, the fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed quite large. So I decided to make up a story based on the information they gave me in the course of the interrogation. Towards the end, uh, at the end of that, I collapsed into a fetal position crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. Right. I was charged with a murder and rape. Uh, the, the whole um, scenario you you uh, refer to good cop, bad cop. Um, what what does that actually mean? Oh, the whole I was scenario, good cop, bad cop. Yeah, what it means is that one officer was really aggressive and the other one was pretending to be my friend. They do that in order to throw this whoever's being questioned in order to keep you off balance psychologically. And right, that's right. And it, and it, and it works. And it works. Um, the fact that you also mentioned a couple things that uh, 
to me seem really incredible that they could get away with this. They never read you your rights, your Miranda rights. And there was no either a parent or a lawyer present. And how were you supposed to know that at your age? Um, how, how is it possible that they could do those things and not be accountable to anyone? Well, they read me my, when I got in the cop car to be transported to Brewster, the officer mm -hmm. did read me my rights. But the issue is that at 16, I didn't understand them. And that, and that lack of clarity was exasperated by the, by this whole Jefferson's junior detective helper mm -hmm. scenario. Uh, so that was that's as far as that part of it. In terms of my age, well, I mean, in in just if you're 16 years old, you're considered to be an adult for purposes of being able to waive your rights outside of the presence of a, a parent or an attorney. Hmm. I, I it, to me, the law states that you are still a juvenile at the age of 16. You're not considered an adult, right? Well. It, for some purposes, yes, but for purposes of waiving your Miranda warnings, no, you are old enough to waive them. I see, I see. Um, all right, so we are now at the point where uh, they extracted a false confession from you. And I wanted, if, if you can, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this very big issue of false confessions, particularly where it applies to young people who were just your age. Yeah, so while adults have been known to have given false confessions, uh, particularly vulnerable populations are people with mental health issues and people with who are juveniles, so which I was a juvenile. I wanna add that Coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. Right, right. Um, and why, why do you think uh, police try to get a false confession uh, out of any, anybody, not necessarily the young, but uh, adults as well? They're trying to solve a case. But I also want to add, but I also want to add that sometimes I don't, sometimes I don't think their purpose is to get a false confession. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might be mistaken in their belief that, yeah, that, yeah, they might be mistaken in their belief that, you know, a suspect is guilty, but nonetheless, they engage in coercive tactics and it has the net impact of getting a false confession, getting innocent people trapped in it. Yeah. But again, sometimes they're purposely doing it and sometimes they, they, they don't. That's right. Now, uh, just as an aside, I very often quote uh, from the National Registry of Exonerations. I mention them quite frequently because I think it's a great website. And in 2020, uh, what, what the registry does is around March of the following year, they go back and look at the year before and give you an overview of exonerations. So, in 2020, there were 129 exonerations. 13 of those were attributed to false confessions and 87 were attributed to official misconduct, two factors in your case. Um, did you want to talk about um, you know, one of those or both of those? 
Yeah, sure. The misconduct aspect was aside. The threat and false promise are is misconduct. But aside from that, uh, before the trial started, the DNA didn't match me. And the police went into the field and interviewed 17 witnesses who knew the victim in one capacity or another. And all of them told the police that there was no boyfriend. She didn't have any consensual sex. And the police purposely did not document any of those interviews. And so therefore, that was not available to turn over to the defense. So we never knew that. Uh, in, in addition, an additional misconduct was when the DNA didn't match me, the medical examiner committed fraud. He committed perjury. He suddenly claimed that uh, he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim had been promiscuous. And, you know, that statement allowed the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter, that the DNA didn't match me, that it uh, that she must have slept with somebody else prior to my murdering and raping her. Taking it a step further, he also named somebody by name without setting the proper evidentiary foundation. So he never got a DNA test from this other individual. He never called him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument of the jury. So those things are additional aspects of misconduct in my case. Right. Now, in order to um, change some of the... Uh, the ways of the police when it comes to questioning a suspect. Um, the idea of recording an interview has definitely been written about. Were, were any of the, um, the times that you were questioned by the police, were they recorded? Uh, the, the, nothing on the day of the coerced false confession was recorded. And in terms of the six weeks run up to it, the, the general answer is no with the caveat that there were a couple of times that they uh, that they did start to record audio tapes, but then they would they started and it wasn't a complete recording. They started and stopped the tape a couple of times. Hmm. That's interesting. What what's your your opinion about um, the idea that if it were required um, that all interviews needed to be recorded, would do you feel that would have made a difference in your particular case thousand percent because the threat <clears throat> and false that because the threat and false promise would have been caught would have been recorded and therefore uh the the confession would have would have uh, been thrown out would not have been admissible would have been coercive right are is there anything else as you think about the time where before you know things uh turned into an arrest that that could be changed that would have made all the difference in your case in, in terms of the way you were handled yeah i, I think that the, the psychological profile should not have been used that's junk science there's nothing mm -hmm. there's nothing science there's nothing scientific about it uh, i don't think that tricking suspects into i mean just the fact of using deception and interrogations in and of itself is deceptive, much less to be engaging, you know, in this overreaching type of game where you're pretending that a suspect is, you know, a junior detective investigator helper. I mean, particularly when dealing with uh, with the youth, I don't think it was proper for them to transport me from one county to another. I mean, obviously it wasn't illegal, but still that doesn't mean it should be legal. Right. That's right. And well, lastly, lastly, just yeah, in the man. in the court, can I just say one other? Absolutely. The, but 
connected to this, you know, in the course of the trial, you know, the judge, so even though the general rule is that polygraph results are not admissible in court because uh, they're not reliable. So the only way they could be let in would be if both sides agree. But despite that being the general rule, the judge repeatedly allowed this polygraphist to tell the jury that I failed the exam without allowing my lawyer to question him about the methods that he used to arrive at that opinion. So that really prejudiced mm -hmm. me big time against the jury. And another irregularity in the trial was that the victim's clothes, including her bra, had been admitted into evidence. And that it was an intersection between that and the one of the statements in the course false confession where I said that I ripped her bra off. So there's some bras that can't be ripped off of a body. So when the jury asked to see the bra, that's when the court said that the clothing items, including the bra, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the the janitors apparently thought that it was garbage and so they threw it out. So I want to point that out. And I just would like to add that, you know, my public defender essentially did not defend me. He didn't interview or call my alibi as a witness. He never cross-examined this medical examiner who was committing this fraud. He never explained the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to challenge the confession. Uh, you know, when you're defending a case when there's a false confession, considering that there's an 80% conviction rate, you have to you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove that confession in as many ways as you can, and you bring it all together in your closing argument. Except that he didn't do any of those things. Right. He would not. He refused to allow me to testify. You know, he said it wasn't up to him to prove that I was innocent. It was up to the other side to prove that I was guilty, which is a very naive way to practice law. I would and say. last, and lastly. Uh, sometimes he argued to the jury the confession never happened. Sometimes he argued that it happened but was coerced. And still other times he argued that it happened but it was false. So by standing, by taking all this, this scattershot approach, he had to have been standing there in front of the jury, you know, with no credibility at all. They had to have viewed him as somebody willing to say anything. Jeffrey, you were talking about some of the uh, things that occurred uh, that were very disturbing. Um, tell us a little bit more about things that, that happened that, in your opinion, as you look back, should not have happened. The jury sent a note out to the judge asking the judge that if they failed to reach a verdict, would they be sequestered over the Christmas holiday? And by sequestration, what we mean is that the jury would be kept in a hotel room away from their family, they're not supposed to watch television, and they're not supposed to uh, have access to newspapers. So I've since learned, years after I was exonerated, that at that time that that note was sent out, that the, the vote was 11 to 1 towards a conviction. There was one holdout juror who thought, who did not believe that I was guilty. He said that they were all pressuring him, and that once that note was sent out and the judge affirmed that they would be sequestered, that that really increased the pressure on him and that nobody, including him, wanted to be sequestered over the Christmas holiday. And that was why he switched his vote. He never thought that I was guilty. 
Oh my goodness. And so because he wanted to rush out of there and get home to his family, sure. it took me 16 years to get home to mine. That's right. What um, we, we are certainly going to, in the next two segments, talk more uh, about your case. Were there other, what I would call, irregularities, um, as, again, as you have the benefit of hindsight? Um, what, what other things were most very, very disturbing to you? That the trial judge at the sentencing hearing, he... I begged him to overturn the verdict because I was innocent and I referenced the DNA to support my contention. And he actually told me on the record, maybe you are innocent, but you would think that that would cause him to step up for justice and exercise his discretion by overturning the conviction. But instead of doing that, he instead gave me a 15 to life sentence, you know, which, you know, I, I was sent to a men's maximum security prison to serve. That was highly irregular. If a judge thinks that a defendant has just been found guilty is innocent, I mean, I don't think any of us need to have a law degree to know that you're supposed to step in and overturn the conviction and find a legal way to get it done and, you know, strike a blow for justice. Don't just sacrifice somebody. How, how, how would he have done that? How, how would, if, if that scenario occurred, um, what what could he have done when the verdict well, he, came yes. through? Right, he could have. Yeah, he could have threw the verdict out on the grounds that he the, the jury just made that decision in reference to his answer, the answer about sequestration. Another thing is that he could have reversed himself on any of the rulings he made against me in the course of the trial, including that evidence issue as that I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that the bra being thrown out. Right. He could have reversed that ruling. So the law says that the judge is allowed to overturn the conviction if any error exists in the record that would re result in a reversal on appeal. Mm -hmm. And so he could have, he could, there was no shortage of issues like that. And what, what do you think was the reason he did not do the right thing? I think that there was public pressure. I mean, every time I, made a court appearance, it was a major media moment with virtually all the coverage from a guilt presumptive oriented perspective. So I think that, I think he got caught up in that. You do. Um, was there an appeal after your trial or there was nothing? Yes. There no, there, there was, there was seven, there were seven appeals. Oh my God. No, the, 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 uh, the issue of how I've been questioned was an issue. My innocence based on the DNA was an issue, uh, you know, that there was legally insufficient evidence that the that the prosecution hadn't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that there was, uh, the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. The issue of the polygraphist repeatedly being allowed to tell the jury I failed, that was raised. The evidence throwing out was raised. The judge being biased was raised. And another four legal issues were raised. And the and court ruled. The court rejected all those challenges and voted five nothing, and it was all downhill from there. The reargument motion was denied, and one one word denied. New York Court of Appeals declined to give me permission to appeal to them. I lost in federal court because my lawyer was given the wrong information by the court clerk, which resulted in my petition arriving four days too late. So, which is what the court based this decision on, and that ruling was upheld 
in the next uh, three courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court declining to give me permission to appeal to them. Mm. Wow. Well, we, we are going to go a little deeper into, you know, how uh, indeed you did eventually get out in our next two podcasts, but I so appreciate you're talking about your case uh, and we'll, we'll have both you and Gia here next time. So our listeners, please tune in and stay with us for this very, very fascinating series on Jeffrey Deskovic's case. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.